Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. For better or worse, we've all taken IQ tests. If we scored well, we may think we're geniuses, and if we scored poorly, we may go through life thinking we're slow. The trouble is, IQ is a deeply flawed metric of human value and intelligence with very little in the way of real science to back it up. Nevertheless, it's been used for over a century to sort people into categories of who is inherently smart and who is less so, as well as historically in the service of cruel and baseless ideologies. And although IQ tests have been altered over time, Aspects of them are still being used in service to educational programs and as a measure of human potential. My guest today is Dr. Rena Bliss, an associate professor of sociology at Rutgers University, the author of two previous books. Her latest highlights the fact that our intelligence has little to do with test results, nor is it fixed in our genes, but highly influenced by our environments. It's called Rethinking Intelligence, a Radical Understanding of Our Human Potential. Dr. Rena Bliss, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. So the book claims that IQ tests are not only a false measure of intelligence, they're based on racist and discriminatory assumptions. Talk about the history of the intelligent intelligence quotient and IQ tests and how they've been used and what they actually measure. Well, IQ is kind of a concept built on the idea of measuring and ranking intelligence. And that concept comes to us from Charles Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton. Some people will have heard of the name Francis Galton before. He was a very popular in his lifetime scientist. He was knighted. He became Sir Francis Galton. And he is the person who gave us most of the basis of what we think of when we think of genetics, the field of genetics. Um, so Charles Darwin introduced the idea of evolution by natural selection. And of course, you know, we think of the gene as coming from Charles Darwin, but really a lot of the science of genetics came through the work of his cousin, Francis Galton. Um, Francis Galton is also the first person to really apply genetics to the ideas of, um, you know, what we do as humans in terms of our behavior. So behavior, um, social interactions, also like uh, anything, you know, to do with the mind, the cognitive side of things. And so the thing with Galton was that he really believed that there were people on this earth who had better genes and there were people on this earth majority of people who did not right and so he thought that the people with the good genes needed to band together and procreate and the people who didn't have so such great genes should be prevented from procreating or or killed off completely so he had this idea that we needed to know who was really better and for him better meant smarter it meant more intelligent so he had this idea and he introduced it into the world at the same time as he was building this whole idea of genetics and of you know and this field really and he said you know we need to know we need to rank and compare 
people based on their intelligence. And the way we would do this is by, you know, somehow measuring, figuring it out, and then going along and finding all the special people and making sure that they are encouraged to breed and keeping them away from the people who were not special and doing whatever we wanted to do with the people who were not special. And that would be either, again, like, you know, sterilizing, preventing them from ever having children or just, you know, sending them to labor camps or, you know, making them do work for us, enslaving, calling it, you know, what have you. Like there were so many ideas around what to do with everybody else, right? And um, and then of course, um, also, you know, he advocated for basically killing off, you know, in, in fact, he had this really disturbing notion of, um, killing everybody from the African subcontinent. So, you know, he had really, for his time, they were radical and yet very highly accepted and believed in ideas. Um, but, you know, the history, you're asking me to tell you about the history. Well, you know, if you go through, you know, he, he was really active in the late 1800s. If you go into the early 1900s, you see that his eyes, his ideas took hold especially in Europe and in America. Um, and, you know, America, by the time that we were entering uh, World War II, not knowing exactly, you know, not everyone knowing exactly why we were there, but people, you know, knowing that something had to be done about what was going on in Europe. America itself, the country had already been sterilizing like tens of thousands of people hmm. based on IQ tests based on intelligence tests so yeah that's kind of the the short version of the history <laughs> how does of the iq test how does the content and administration of today's iq tests actually favor the dominant groups in our society well unfortunately the tests though they have changed and there are better tests so i'm not saying that every single intelligence test is problematic and should be you know eradicated and you know um but basically the the gist of the tests and the way we administer the tests um has been and continues to be problematic okay so the tests can ask questions about concepts about um, vocabulary can ask questions about like, you know, give you math problems. It can give you, there can be all kinds of things on the test. The test can also ask you about other things and try to get at other forms of intelligence, so to speak. Right. Um, not like the kind that we think of in terms of reading, writing and math, but like, um, you know, spatial, visual, spatial, etc. cetera. Um, and I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment, but basically, the the kind of way that, that the tests have remained the same have mostly been around that reading, writing, and math kind of portion of it. And so what happens when you have a test and you just give it in the sense of like, a you know, and you standardize it and kind of give it in, in the way that you deploy a standardized test, you give it to a bunch of people and you just like, you know, give them their scores back and, and tell them like, okay, you're you're good at this, you're not good at this, you're good at this, you're not good at this. Um, these people need to go into gifted education, these people need to go into special education, um, you know, 
basically the problem with doing it that way, and that's pretty much how it's been done until today, until very recently, um, that kind of thing ends up favoring people who have, who have had all their basic needs met. And I know that it sounds like, like what does basic needs have to do with anything? Well, it has a lot to do with taking a test, performing well on a test, being able to concentrate, being able to like, you know, ace the test. Sure, there are some people who are really good at taking tests regardless of how deprived they are, but the majority of us need to have our basic needs met in order to concentrate, to focus, to be able to make our way through a test. Also, there, for all of these, you know, decades, almost, you know, almost centuries at this point, right, um, of, of doing this kind of testing, we also have um, baked a lot of cultural biases into the test questions. So the current tests are trying to get rid of any cultural biases. And by cultural bias, I mean like having words that only a person of a certain class background or a certain ethnic background or a certain kind of social status would recognize in the first place. Um, a famous example is like putting a question about Shakespeare into the test. Or another famous example is asking questions about like cups and saucers. Like that's a kind of, you know, um, you have to have a cultural familiarity with using cups, cups along with saucers in order to answer a question about cups and saucers, right? Um, so like the tests themselves has, have traditionally been, um, you know, biased in these ways. And then in addition, they have favored people who have had their basic nutritional and safety and, you know, housing and, um, you know, clean air, water, what have you kind of basic needs met. When people come into the test room, the testing space, and now it's, you know, you could do all, a lot of this stuff virtually, but when you come into the testing space, if you haven't had your basic needs met, and not just on that very day, but like for years and years, you know, basically you're going to have a harder time focusing and taking the test. And if you happen to also be a person who doesn't have those cultural points of know-how, you are also going to um, have a harder time passing the test or scoring high on a test. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the IQ test, its dubious history, its accuracy, and what might replace it. My guest is Rutgers University professor Dr. Rena Bliss. Her new book is Rethinking Intelligence, A Radical New Understanding of Our Human Potential. So can you give us a good working definition of intelligence, one that, that works for you? Yes, definitely. So my basic definition of intelligence is learning from our environments. I think of intelligence as a process, not as a fixed thing, a test score, some kind of, you know, SAT score or IQ score. I think of it as something that is an ongoing process, a journey. Um, it is learning from our environments and taking the opportunity to learn when we can. So it's something that all of us do naturally, no matter how 
neurotypical we are or seem, no matter how neurodivergent we are or seem, we do this kind of thing. A person, no matter how strange they feel or how, you know, normal they, they feel or appear to be, that person is always learning from their environment. And so I, I like to um, focus on the process of intelligence, the process of learning, because I think for so long we focused on the score. We focused on the snapshot. We focused on the momentary kind of performance or expression, grades, things like that, that don't really tell us what a person is doing when they're being intelligent, when they're using their intelligence. As I understand it, scientists now believe that intelligence is actually a product of communication between the neural networks in our brain. That's called neuroplasticity, meaning that the brain has the capacity to change and grow. And, And we actually have the capacity to keep getting smarter. Have I got that right? Yes, definitely. And, um, you know, neuroplasticity is one of the most wonderful things that we've learned in the past, you know, few decades. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing resource for people when they think of themselves, when they are parenting, when they think of, or grandparenting, when they think of other people and the people that are in their lives that they care about, you know, it's just like, whoa, mind blown, like we are changing, we are developing, we are learning, our brains are forming networks, they're changing the networks, they're pruning parts that we don't need, they're, you know, growing new parts and forming new parts, new new connections, all our lives, not just when we are children, sure, it happens at, you know, a fast crazy fast rate when we're babies and then, you know, still very fast and amazing when we're children, but it continues on into our adult lives. And we actually are always still learning. We can still learn. We just need to take advantage of those opportunities. We need to see ourselves as infinitely able to learn more and take advantage of the opportunities that we have to learn. To optimize our intelligence, you suggest developing a growth-oriented mindset to encourage our brain's neuroplasticity, basically to keep on learning because learning itself builds the physical connections in the brain. But you tell us that we have to be careful, that that doesn't mean becoming super high achievers or the tops of our professions or CEOs. Why not? Well, it's it's really interesting because, um, you know, there's a, a delicate kind of balance between thinking, wow, I can learn anything, I can be anything, I can do anything, I've got infinite potential, and then just running ourselves into the ground because we aren't even taking the time to rest. Also, stress is a huge thing. Stress is like, it's, it's something I write about um, because when you look at um, genetics, genomics, our, our DNA, and the way that our DNA is coding for, you know, our bodies to basically do our, our brain functions, our, our cognitive functions, and all of the, the things that we need it to do in our brains. Um, one of the things that, that we, another thing that we've learned besides neuroplasticity that is, you know, one of those amazing, mind-blowing things of the last few decades is we've learned that um, there are parts 
of our genetic, you know, our basically our our DNA kind of code in our in our cells that that turn our genes on or off. And those parts, so people call call that the epigenome. Those parts of our of our body and our of our cells are really responsive to the amount of stress that we are facing in our lives. And when we have a lot of stress coming in, we basically see those parts of our DNA being modified in in a way that that our our genes are are getting um, kind of dysfunctional. So they're less able to turn on when they're supposed to. They're less able to empower us to think and think clearly. They're, they're, they actually, you know, there are a lot of ways that our different organs are negatively impacted by stress, but the epigenome is one of those ways. And so it's something that I am really, um, you know, keen to talk about because I just want to make sure that people know that that when you when you embrace neuroplasticity, you also have to kind of have a measured approach to your own learning in the sense that it's not like open season on overachievement. It's more like, okay, now how do I, you know, chart a path for myself where I can learn and I can rest, where I can learn and I can um, ease up on the pressure and where I can, you know, instead of saying like, oh, the best thing is just then to, you know, open my brain into learn mode or click my brain into learn mode until um, I run myself ragged. No, the best thing to do is to remove those kind of external, externally driven kind of um, benchmarks for being smart and to start thinking like, what do I actually care about? How can I support myself? How can I make sure that I'm, you know, being true to what I care about when I'm learning? And how can I also give myself the space and the grace to rest, to rest a lot and to take less stress from the world around me as if, much as I can. Yeah. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about the IQ test, its dubious history, its accuracy, and how we can actually get smarter by learning things. My guest is Rutgers University professor Dr. Rena Bliss. Her new book is Rethinking Intelligence, A Radical New Understanding of Our Human Potential. So there's a section of your book that emphasizes the fact that learning is a long road full of pitfalls and that we actually learn best when we acknowledge this. You tell us that in your own teaching style, you're honest about your struggles and that you emphasize process. And I love when you say you teach kids, or anyone really, because you're teaching university students, you teach them to try, fail, get up again, and practice, practice, practice. Why is this so essential to building intelligence? Well, because, um, you know, there's a lot of great cognitive psych research, learning research, educational research out there that shows that we really learn when we hit the wall of what we've previously known. It sounds kind of like philosophical, a little bit woo-woo, but it's, it's, it's absolutely true. It's like you aren't going to learn until you reach what you don't know. And that involves, usually it involves making mistakes. Mistakes are like the best place to actually learn, right? Because it's like you've reached exactly what you don't know. You don't know how to do this. You don't know how to 
you know, in, in that embody or enact that skill, right? So it's like, here you are. And now what do you do with that? You found out that you did something wrong. You didn't quite make it. You didn't solve that problem exactly. Okay, now we're going to figure out what's missing and we're going to solve it. We're going to bridge ourselves to the known or to knowing more and having that under our belts. So it's really like, you know, um, it's, it's like when we think of um, learning and we think like, oh, I just, I'm not good at that or I'm a failure or I failed at that and we just stop there. That's when learning stops. That's when we're not being intelligent. We're not using our intelligence. Like, I want people to understand that every one of us is born intelligent. We're all born intelligent. We don't all think the same, nor should we. What, what kind of world would this be if we were all exactly the same? My, my, I have identical twin sons. They're not, they're not identical. They don't think identically, you know? So it's like, we, we, we don't want to have a world of like, you know, everybody is exactly the same, right? We are all different. We think differently. We have different interests. We have different experiences that configure us into different kinds of people. And, you know, it's really just like learning ourselves, knowing, okay, this is where I need to learn more. I've reached this edge, this limit, the precipice of the unknown. And now I'm going to dive in and I'm going to figure out what else I can learn more. Practically everyone listening has learned in the traditional way, that is, teacher, lecturing, students, listening. But there's another way that offers better results, and that is collaborative, hands-on experience, or what you call connected learning. Explain what this is and why it works. Well, connected learning is just a great, great way to structure any kind of learning event, okay? So, for me, I'm a university professor. So when I hold a learning event, it's in a classroom because it's assigned to me for my university. And, you know, of course, sometimes I'm, you know, the weather's good. You can go outside if there's an outside out, you know, of the building, you know, in which you're scheduled to teach or whatever. Sometimes there's a, a lawn or something like that. But essentially, you have to kind of make the experience somehow connected. And the way that I do that is I try to get everyone who is at that learning event, all my students who happen to be there, to think about their own experiences, think about the concept or the skill that we are learning and and reflect on how on what they know about it or what they what they don't know about it and how it it can affect their lives, what they've seen out in the world. And I try to do it in a way that they are discussing with each other and not just ping-ponging to me. That's one thing I always tell them, you know, in the beginning is like, I don't want you to just ask me a question and then some I say something and someone else asks me another question and I say something. It's like that is a very old-fashioned model of teaching and learning. And um, this, on the other hand, this connected learning is where we're all kind of equals. We're all learners in process of learning something and we try to figure out what is in it for us why are we learning this thing and how can we support each other in learning that through sharing our experiences and thinking together and learning together it's really synergistic it's a very effective way because a learning becomes more contextualized you aren't just learning a concept disconnected or like words on a paper or words on 
you know, PowerPoint slide or what have you, right? Or just words coming out of my mouth towards them, right? But rather you're learning through interaction. You're learning through the contextualization of whatever that concept or that skill is in terms of the real world. You know, if, if we had the most ideal situation, we would actually go out into the real world and we would do the learning out in the real world. I teach at a public university, resources are scarce and, you know, we don't have that, that kind of like, like, you know, I can just take 110 students out to, um, to, you know, an on-site learning experience, but at least we can use our own connected, our connectivity in the space where we are learning. And we could think about how these ideas and these skills actually empower us in our real for reals for reals lives despite the controversies about them schools continue to use iq tests because you tell us they're cost effective standardized and easy to administer but but what are the alternatives what other functions of our brains might be measured by other kind of tests that are free of cultural bias and privilege well, there are better and worse intelligence tests. I will say that first and foremost, that there are, you know, just tests that are more focused on the um, the kind of IQ portion of the of of people's, you know, different uh, suite of intelligences, so to speak. So there are better tests that can be used, and they can be used one on one with. A, a school counselor, a psychologist, a specialist of whatever, you know, the, the student might be facing. For example, if a student has dyslexia or dyscalculia or has, you know, a, some kind of specific thing, there are specific tests for each kind of element of what you might want to know. The, the tests that are just more focused on um, standardized kind of aptitude and IQ in terms of these you know, just very basic sense of reading um, and writing or verbal and quantitative and math, you know, kind of things are are more problematic, right? So I think that um, that when we think about testing our kids, think one-on-one, -on -one, think, you know, not like a room full of, of kids being given the same test and having those kids not be evaluated individually in terms of what their specific needs are. Um, also think, um, is there a, a way to get the this most specific form of what we're looking for? So instead of like a blanket test that's supposed to get at someone's general intelligence, I'm always skeptical whenever I hear people talk about general intelligence, like as if intelligence is really just like, one thing and we're going to find a score you know so um so think like how specific how kind of ungeneral can we get for for this particular student and and that means that aptitude tests that are super standardized and are just like given to a room full of kids if that's happening around you then in any way that you can to intervene on that and to say like this isn't good for for my kid, or this isn't good for this, you know, for, for my, you know, my grandkid or whatever, there, there 
experience that they're having here because those kinds of tests are really um, the ones that that do kind of work against people who are less privileged and they are the kinds that should not be the the way that we decide how to treat students and how to help them to be better learners we want to know specifically about each learner what they need if they have a special need then we want to meet that need we don't want to just say like generally you are smart or generally you are not smart and therefore you get this class or you get this other class right okay well we're going to have to leave it there uh i want to thank you very much today we've been talking intelligence and human potential. My guest has been Dr. Rena Bliss from Rutgers University. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. Rethinking Intelligence was just released by Harper Wave, and it can tell you an amazing amount how you can actually get smarter. Believe me, it helped me already. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on the real metrics of measuring intelligence, one interview at a time. Bye for now.